on my word to you from several weeks ago that we would consider this matter of fasting more closely. This is not the first time that we've come to this topic in Acts, nor will it be the last that we will hear of it. So an entire sermon given over to this, uh, I think, will not fail to carry its own reward. Acts chapter 14, will begin, well, we'll be reading just one verse, actually. Uh, verse 23, you might remember that Paul and Barnabas are in um, that region in, of Galilee at this point. They're visiting churches there, churches who owe their very existence in large part to the work of that dynamic duo in God's hands as his uh, willing instruments for church planting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing your will to us in it, not leaving us in the darkness of our own ignorance and fear, but speaking clearly to us. And we pray that will be the case now, that it will be the voice of God that we hear and not merely the voice of man. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Fasting. Sounds so old-fashioned, doesn't it? Positively medieval, associated in your mind perhaps with monks or nuns making their way down dimly lit stone-walled monasteries and convents to the sound of echoing murmurs of Gregorian chants in the background. Or maybe it conjures up images of superstitious Christians beating themselves with whips in order to merit the blessings of God, fasting and flagellating. Indeed, fasting sounds almost un-American, doesn't it? With our constant concentration on sumptuous foods, on gourmet restaurants. Richard Foster writes, In a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of step with the times. No offense against the golden arch at temples, Mrs. Young. Uh, None at all. (laughs) We're very skilled at feasting, aren't we? Fast to feast and slow to fast. One pastor I heard at one of our denominational uh, annual general assemblies years ago was saying that the first time he was invited to uh, a fast a time of uh, prayer, he showed up packing a brown bag lunch. But uh, fasting with prayer is not simply a medieval practice for cloistered monks, nor is it a practice whose value expired when misguided Christians turned it into a means of currying God's favor for salvation. If that were the case, we'd have very few religious practices left, wouldn't we? Uh, who trust upon God's grace and mercy alone for our salvation. Prayer and fasting with prayer is a spiritual discipline. In fact, if you'll consult the scriptures on this point, you'll find that it is not only biblical, 
It is actually an important ingredient in a growing and mature spiritual life and walk with God. Fasting is. A quick scan of scripture shows that fasting was the practice of individuals. It was the practice of nations. It was the practice of groups of people and particularly of the church. Moses and David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, Cornelius, Paul, Barnabas. Just a few to mention. All fasted, as did, of course, the one who is himself not only our Savior, but our great example, Jesus Christ. Israel and Judah fasted, and as you remember, the wicked but repentant city of Nineveh. Saul's valiant men, David and his men, the Jews in Susa, the people and the priests, the prophets, the teachers in Antioch, as we saw several weeks ago, the newly established churches recorded here in Acts, even married couples in Corinth, all fasted. Now, what does the scripture mean by fasting? Well, simply this, it means denying oneself, which also, by the way, happens to be the very thing that Jesus told us and tells us to do. If we're going to follow him, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him in a genuinely Christian life. It is denying oneself something pleasurable, something desirable, something even necessary for a period of time in order to serve a greater purpose usually prayer. The most common item from which Christians fast is also the one we think of first, and that is food. But biblical fasting is not limited only to food, nor does it necessitate abstinence from all food. In Daniel 10, for instance, we read of a three-week fast in Daniel's uh, Time when he abstained from choice food, that is, from meat and wine. I have a friend who abstains from iced tea for the uh, length of the Lenten season. Now, that sounds like a, a small thing, maybe, but it's not to him. To him, that is a choice food. On the other hand, we can remember Ezra, that godly leader, fasting not only from food, but also from Water. Paul also implies in his first letter to the Corinthians that there is a type of fasting very, very carefully circumscribed and mutually agreed upon by a husband and a wife from sexual intimacy for the sake of prayer. According to the scripture, that sort of fast must also be one in which the husband and wife also besides being in complete agreement, also come back after a clearly defined time, come back together again lest Satan tempt one or the other into sin. Typically in the Bible, total fasts were short, partial fasts were longer, but whatever kind of fast in which you engage, whether total or partial, from all food or for some, from some foods, or some other type of abstinence, a fast must be a voluntary act of self-denial and self-affliction, which is what the Bible calls it sometimes, afflicting ourselves before the Lord. 
There's, of course, a religious purpose behind all of this. We're not talking about fasting to lose weight or to lower your cholesterol. Uh, To fast for those reasons and then to act as though you were fasting for religious reasons is hypocrisy. And the Bible has plenty to say about that, about false fasting as well, the kind of fasting that God will not honor and that his soul hates. So I think we'll do well to consider, first and briefly, a few negatives when it comes to fasting. First, we must remember that there's no value in fasting in itself. Like everything else that we do in the Christian life, it is motive, it is intention, sincerity, humility, faith. These are the things that are required to make any spiritual discipline useful And pleasing to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. You remember that prayer, don't you? It was a Pharisee in Jesus' parable. Face up to heaven, so full of himself, so certain and self-confident that if he did, and because he did these outward things, if he fasted and he tithed, God would be pleased with him. But his words rose no higher than his mouth and fell to the floor that day. Why? Because without faith, it is nothing. No, it's worse than nothing. All the works, all the acts, all the religious routine is absolutely nothing and worse than that without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Martin Luther recovered that truth and it transformed his pre-conversion fasts, some as long as three days without a bite of food. I say it transformed Luther's fasts from attempts to merit favor with God into acts of love and devotion to God, having already been justified by God through faith apart from works. Second, you cannot substitute fasting for other acts of righteousness. We saw this in our sermon series in Amos many years ago, and again in Isaiah, not quite as long ago, that God will not receive an act of worship when it is given as a substitute for obedience elsewhere in a person's life. Remember to Israel, Isaiah points out, behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. What's true for worship in general is true for fasting in particular. In order to achieve its desired effect, it must be out of a life that is otherwise marked by faithfulness and obedience and repentance. Don't you dare treat your wife cruelly and ignore your children and steal from your employer 
and give yourself over to lust, fornication, and adultery, and then come fasting to God. He won't have it. It must be both, you see. It must be a life of humble, repentant, striving after obedience with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and the religious acts of worship and fasting and prayer. The early Christians understood this well and so wrote things like this. Fasting is very good, and it is. Fasting is very good, provided that the commandments of the Lord be observed. Observe as follows the fasting you intend to keep. First of all, refrain from both, both from speaking and from hearing what is wrong, and cleanse your heart from all pollutions, from all revengeful feelings, and from all covetousness, and reckon up what thy meal on this day would have cost thee, and give the amount to some widow or orphan or to the poor. Third, a true fast must not only be an outward act, but also a work of the heart. Rend your hearts, said the prophet Joel in chapter 2 of that book. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, Joel was not saying that it was unimportant to worship the Lord and to demonstrate repentance outwardly and bodily in invisible ways. What he was decrying was the only, the merely outward appearances that did not involve the heart. You can fast all day long. You could tear up an entire closet worth of garments. But if it's only an outward show without the heart, it's nothing. It's worthless, really, worse than worthless. Return to me with all your heart, says the Lord. With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Don't leave off the fasting, he says. Only make sure that behind the fasting, I have your heart. That your heart is engaged, not just your stomach. So there's no intrinsic value in fasting itself. Fasting is no substitute for true righteousness. And fasting must not be an outward practice only, but inward as well. Those are some of the negatives. But let's hasten on to add some of the positives, what purposes fasting serves, that it should be a part of our spiritual lives today. First, we should fast as an expression of our humility and of our dependence upon God. It was their humble dependence on God to guide them, expressed through fasting and prayer together that brought about the setting apart of Paul and Barnabas to ministry, to go and proclaim the good news as missionaries, and then their dependence upon God for his blessings upon their work that was demonstrated so clearly in the days of fasting and prayer that continued in Antioch that we read about or read about in Acts chapter 13. Same here. 
In 14, as they fasted in connection with the appointment of the leadership of the elders in the churches, depending upon God for wisdom and blessing, they fasted. Ezra, you might remember, proclaimed a fast in his day, long before that, that we might, he says, humble ourselves before God. The writers of the Psalms speak about humbling themselves with fasting as well. And how central is this matter of humility, isn't it, to any genuine Christian human life? That humility, my brothers and sisters, it is the missing jewel from the Christianity of our day. And let's confess it from our own faith as well. Humility. We have our money. We have our five-year plans. We have our technology. We have a book or two or ten on every subject from improving your marriage to growing your church. We've got it all together. But we don't. And we need all of us to humble ourselves before the Lord. And fasting reminds us that, in fact, everything we are and everything we have belongs to the Lord. And we're absolutely dependent upon him always for our next breath. John Calvin, with his typical pastoral insight, made this observation in his Immortal Institutes. Whenever a controversy over religion arises, which ought to be settled by either a synod or an ecclesiastical court, whenever there is a question about choosing a minister, whenever, finally, any difficult matter of great importance is to be discussed, or again, when there appear the judgments of the Lord's anger as pestilence, war, and famine, this is a holy ordinance and one salutary for all ages that pastors urge the people to public fasting and extraordinary prayers. There are plenty of reasons, even in our prayers this morning, for us to fast and pray this week. Second, fasting can also be a means of breaking the sinful will and of strengthening our holy will and of promoting spiritual discipline. In our lives, that doesn't necessarily appear to be the the point here in Acts uh, this morning, but it surely is the effect that fasting has had in other circumstances in Scripture. By fasting, the people of God were broken of their love of sin and were brought to their sanctified senses to recommit themselves to the Lord and to purity before Him. This is how we grow as Christians still today. Same old-fashioned way, putting sin to death, the sinful nature that is, and strengthening the disciplines of holiness. Nothing's changed in all these hundreds of years. There's no magical book that will uh, help you to do this outside of the scripture, I mean, of course. The one who fasts, forces his body to say no to certain things. Even when 
the body cries out, yes, yes, yes. Give it to me and give it to me now. Fasting helps us to learn to control ourselves, to take mastery over our bodies rather than being slaves to our bodies, which is also essential for any genuine Christian. When I ran cross-country races as a youth, I found that the more time I spent in training, forcing my body to do what it most definitely did not want to do, the more control I had over my body. When the track season started, I was a slave to my body. And by the time the season was over, I was taking mastery over it. Well, Paul makes the same point in spiritual terms in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Which, by the way, has to be one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture, the Apostle Paul doing this, living this way, so that he will not be disqualified for the prize? What sort of seriousness must the Christian life require of us? Now, Paul didn't literally beat his body like some say. What he did was to deprive his body of what it craved, saying no when his body demanded things of him. No doubt he did this especially by fasting, by denying his hungry body food for certain periods of time. And in that way, he mastered his body until he could say no whenever he wanted. And by saying no to perfectly permissible desires, he also gained the ability to say no to sinful desires as well. The saints throughout history since have had the same experience. Notes Thomas Shepard, the early American Puritan minister, in his journal, I kept a private fast for the conquest of my pride. So we'll gain greater conquest over our sins and our sin through this practice of fasting and mastering our own flesh. Third, and finally, fasting will serve to intensify our petitionary prayer. That is the prayer that we're asking, petitioning God for something, asking him for something. This seems plainly to be the case here in Antioch. For one thing, when you empty your stomach, your mind is free to focus more clearly on your prayers. It sharpens the mind. It clears away distractions that keep you from fixing your eyes more immediately on the matter that you're praying about. Of course, they could have eaten supper, could have gotten together and had a fellowship meal like we do and then gathered for prayer. But we know what happens, don't we, on the second Sunday of the month when we have our fellowship meal and then come together to pray. Nothing wrong in that. We simply know what happens, don't we? 
But their prayers were intensified, and their asking was turned into imploring because they had prepared themselves by fasting. John Calvin suggests that this is the chief purpose, actually, of fasting. He writes, to render us more eager and unencumbered for prayer. Surely we experience this, he goes on to say. With a full stomach, our mind is not so lifted up to God that we can be drawn to prayer with a serious and ardent and uh, affection and, and persevere in it. We've known that, of course, to be true ourselves. It's been some time, hasn't it, since we've done this as a congregation. And maybe the time is upon us again for us to engage in this practice as a congregation together, a congregational wide fast. You might remember the last time that we did that, held three fasts, actually, in as many months, praying about the addition to the building that we're now enjoying in answer to those prayers that we offered as a congregation fasting together. Still, we read a passage like this one, though, and we, we are left to wonder about this, aren't we? We, we ask, in particular, what, what does fasting accomplish in our relationship with God, between us and God, what does fasting accomplish? We know that fasting affects us, don't we? By experience, we know that. But what does it accomplish from God's perspective? Well, to be quite frank, I'm not sure we've wrapped our fingers around that just yet. Or fully have grasped what even in these studies over hundreds of years and thousands of years, exactly what it is from God's perspective uh, about fasting. Perhaps it has the same effect as importunate prayer. Maybe that's what it is, of praying over and over and over again, as Jesus has taught us to do, until God is pleased to give over. I don't know, but this much we do know. God has been pleased to teach and from time to time to require this of his people. And whatever and wherever it has been done and done from the heart. It has had this glorious effect of nurturing and strengthening the saints for holy lives and of making for effectual prayers. It served as the great means for teaching us the terrible seriousness of being a Christian, of prayer that is the great tool of advancing God's kingdom. And it has taught us that sacrificial living is for Christians the norm, not the exception, for a genuine disciple of Christ. And surely, surely if this is a matter of such importance in the mind of our Savior, Jesus, who taught his disciples during his earthly ministry, saying not, if you fast, 
but rather when you fast. And if the great leaders of his church, from the prophets to the apostles, found this absolutely necessary to accomplish their kingdom goals in prayer, then how much more important must it be for us to fast as well? So Christians, with the word of God in your hands and the love of God in your hearts to instruct and to guide you and your conscience, you go and put this discipline into practice too. See how the Lord is pleased to answer wonderfully when his children actually do deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Amen.